I've often thought that the world is something like a department store in which uh, some Halloween prankster has gotten loose and he's switched all the price tags. And the things that ought to be valuable and sought after and prized have very cheap price tags on them. And the things that ought to be of little value to people have humongous price tags on them. You walk in and there's a mink coat with a price tag of $5.98. And a t-shirt is selling for $1,500. And the brand new uh, television set is selling for $2.67 on sale. And a new yo-yo costs $1,360. And it occurs to me that the world is a lot like that. The things that people ought to prize are things that are generally regarded as worthless by people. And the things that are really of little value are things that are prized highly by people. Well, you'll be comforted to know that there was just as much nonsense about this in the first century as there is in the 20th, and that the Scripture gives us some help in rearranging these price tags, going back into that department store and hanging the right price tags on the right merchandise. And I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, because I think in this passage, Paul gives us some help in reordering our thinking about money, and about material possession. Now we need to pick up the flow of Paul's argument here, which really starts in verse 3, so we will start there. There were a number of uh, teachers in the church at Ephesus where Timothy was laboring who were misleading the people, and one of the areas in which they were misleading them had to do with their finances, their perspective on money and material possessions. So Paul wants to deal with that issue, but he wants us to understand more about these teachers. So let's read verses 3 through 5 and get the background on these teachers. It says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now you notice in verse 3, uh, first of all, Paul describes for us the revelation that we have in Scripture. He first of all says these are sound words. And that's a word that was used to describe people who were in the pink of physical health, people who were free from any kind of disease or defect. And Paul says that's what we have in the Scripture. We have a revelation here that's healthy, it's sound, it's free from any kind of defect, it's something that's reliable, something that's trustworthy. He says, secondly, these words are words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the words of revelation we have in Scripture comes from someone who is a Lord. This is revelation which comes to us with authority. It's not something that we can simply ignore or accept if we choose to, but this is authoritative revelation. And the third thing he says is that this is doctrine which conforms to godliness, or it's a, a doctrine, a teaching which produces godliness in people. I don't think there's any deeper hunger in the human heart than to be godlike. That's what all the myths of the ancient Greeks were about, the human desire to be godlike. 
And Paul says here, here is a revelation that will help us be that way. This is a doctrine which produces, which conforms to godliness. Now Paul also says that there are those who do not agree with the, this sound and authoritative and uh, godly teaching. They disagree. In fact, they teach quite the opposite. Now, why is it that they do that? What's the cause of disagreement with this kind of instruction? Well, Paul tells us in verse 4, he says, The man who disagree with, disagrees with this is conceited. In other words, we disagree with the truth of Scripture when we are too proud to admit that it's true. I had a, a psychology professor in college who took great delight in ridiculing the teaching of Paul on the role of women and his teaching about marriage. Took great delight in poking fun at the perspective that Paul teaches in the scriptures. I talked this week with a friend of mine who's taking a psychology class at BSU and his professor takes great delight in seeking to devastate any credibility in Christian faith and as a great contempt and a ridicule for the Christian faith. Well, why is it that these men disagree with the truth of Scripture? Well, Paul tells us it's out of human pride. Now, unfortunately, the same kind of pride can affect our own perspective on the Scriptures, not only those who teach without the body, but those who teach within the body can be affected by this kind of conceit and pride and self-sufficiency which encourages them to disagree with the teaching of the Scripture. I have a close friend that i talked to about this very issue. He is uh, currently involved in a moral problem. It's a, a case of sexual immorality, and I've talked with him about this. And I asked him, I said, uh, do you, what do you understand Paul to mean when he uses the word fornication? And he said, well, I understand that to mean any kind of sexual relationship outside of marriage. I said, do you understand that Paul in his letters prohibits that? And he says, well, yes, I do. I understand that that's what Paul said. Well, then how can you justify this behavior in your own life? And he said, well, it's because I disagree with Paul. Now, <laughs> this man is a Christian. This man is a seminary-trained individual who is very likely heading into some position of full-time Christian ministry, unless the Lord in his grace finds a way to put a stop to it. Well, he disagrees with the teaching of Scripture out of his own pride, a feeling that he and his intellectual prowess can sit in judgment on the truth of Scripture. Now, Paul says teachers of this nature, whether they are within the body or without, are characterized in three ways. First of all, he says that they understand nothing, that uh, they lack true and genuine spiritual insight. So consequently, their teaching is not that helpful. It doesn't liberate people because they, un they do not understand the deep issues of life. Secondly, he says, they have a morbid interest in controversial questions. If you'll notice your marginal reading, it says literally they're sick. They are sick about controversial questions and disputes about words. In other words, teachers of this type love to argue about theology. They have an unhealthy interest in theological questions. They love to quarrel over disputes about doctrine. And that, by the way, is one of the marks of a, of a disapproved teacher, is someone who delights to argue and to quarrel over issues of doctrine. 
loves to argue over these and get involved in disputes and angry debates over this issue. And it's always been an encouragement to me to to heed Paul's words in 2 Timothy 2 that the Lord's bondservant must, must not be quarrelsome but be gentle because within the confines of the Christian body there are those, for example, who have a far different perspective on the uh, gift of tongues than perhaps many of us in this room do. Well, this is a reminder for us not to get involved in disputes about words. We may disagree, but let's be gentle in our disagreement. Let's not uh, allow ourselves to become involved in quarrels and angry debates over this subject. Prophecy is another element which divides Christians in this regard. I went to a seminary where a certain perspective on future matters was highly prized, and the debates and the disputes between those of, of a different theological bent in this regard were often quite heated and often involved some anger. And we need to be very careful that we do not allow ourselves to become involved in quarrels over future things. Now Paul says that when this happens, when we get involved in these quarrels, this is what is produced. He says, out of these things arise envy, strife, that is discord and contention between people, abusive language, that is we begin to attack people instead of issues, evil suspicions, we begin to attribute to our opponents in these theological battles all kinds of impure motives and, and uh, evil thoughts, and constant friction. In other words, this just irritates people, makes them... Uh, yeah, it puts them in a situation of continual conflict and irritation. And this friction is between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. So those are the first two characteristics. They lack spiritual understanding, and these teachers have an unhealthy interest in theological controversy. And then he gives us the third characteristic of these teachers who were active in the church at Ephesus. He says they suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now, he indicates by that that this is a position that they hold in error. They teach erroneously that godliness is a means of gain. Now, I can't think of a single issue, a single concept that is taught more widely in the church today than this one, and taught with authority and taught with conviction that Christian faith is a means of great gain. And what they are talking about here, these teachers, is financial gain. These were teachers who were teaching their people that Christian faith was an assurance of financial prosperity. If you want to succeed, be prosperous, be successful financially, Christianity is the way to go. They were teaching that Christianity was some kind of a good luck charm which you could wave in front of your business your financial matters, and guarantee prosperity, guarantee success. And Paul says flat out they suppose this in error. That's a mistake to think that. <clears throat> I know of one uh, prominent member of the Christian church who's written a number of books developing an entire approach to the Christian life on this basis. And his entire approach to solving every problem in life is that if you give money, God will bless you. If you give money, he will return to you your investment, double, triple, fond of mentioning one illustration in which God returned to an individual seven times what he contributed and made this man wealthy. 
And the promise that he holds out to Christians is that the more you give financially, the more God will give back to you. Well, what is he saying? He is saying that godliness is a means of financial gain. And Paul says that's a characteristic of teachers who are misled, who do not understand the teaching of Scripture on this matter. I know of one instance where a man was sent a fundraising letter from an organization, and the basic pitch in this letter was that uh, we believe that God blesses those who give. In fact, we are so convinced that God blesses those who give that if you will contribute $70 to our organization, we're convinced that God will return that investment three times. You'll get it back threefold. And so, therefore, you ought to contribute to us. Well, this man that I know of wrote a letter back to them and said, you know, I really agree with you that God blesses those who give. But I have a better idea. Why don't you send me $70, and then when the Lord blesses you threefold, you'll be out of debt that much more quickly. See? And I think that's the only way to handle that kind of a pitch. See? But I think we need to remember that the scriptures do not guarantee that Christians will be prosperous. They do not guarantee anywhere that Christians will be successful in business. There's no promise that our Christian faith is some kind of magical guarantee of financial prosperity. Now Paul goes on very quickly in verse 6 to remind us that godliness is a means of great gain, he says, when accompanied by contentment. In other words, godliness, the life of faith, is of great personal benefit to us, but it's not necessarily of the financial kind. And our Christian faith is only a benefit, a profit to us, when it's accompanied with contentment. When it, it's only when we are content with our material condition that godliness is a means of great gain for us. Now, Paul is helpful to define for us or to describe for us what it takes to be content. You ever wondered that? You ever wondered what you need to be satisfied materially? Well, Paul tells us in verse 8. He says, If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. So Paul says that all that the child of God needs to be entirely satisfied is food and covering. Food to eat and a place to sleep. Now, I'd like to take kind of a confidential poll this morning. You'll have to answer these questions in your own heart. But the first question, and only you can answer this, the first question I want to ask you this morning is, are you truly content? Are you completely satisfied, content, at rest, with exactly where you are at financially and materially at this point? Now, only you can answer that. Be honest with yourself. That's the first question. Now, the second question is, do you know that you are going to be able to eat lunch after church today? And the second part of that question is, do you know that you have a place to sleep tonight? Well, my guess is that everybody in this room would answer yes to that second question. And Paul's point is, if your answer to the second question is yes, then your answer to the first question ought to be yes as well. That if we have food and covering, with these, the child of God can be content. 
Well, now the question arises immediately, why should I settle for this? Why should I settle for contentment on this basis? Why not desire to have more and more things? Why not have an ambition to grow and to prosper financially and to put time and energy and great effort into that process? Well, Paul says there are basically two reasons why we should not be ambitious for wealth. The first one is that it's foolish, and he explains this in verse 7. It says, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. In other words, the first reason why it's foolish to be ambitious for wealth and prosperity is simply that you can't take it with you. We came into this world naked as a jaybird, and that's the way we're going out. We came in without stock certificates and bank accounts and houses and cars, <clears throat> and that's exactly the way we're going to check out. I have a good friend who in his last year in seminary was going to candidate at a church, and it was his first opportunity to candidate, and he wanted to make a good impression. So he and his wife arranged all their best clothes. She carefully ironed, washed them and ironed them and pressed them and folded them and packed their suitcases full of their very best clothing. They went down to the airport and boarded the plane, and Dave and Judy wound up in Topeka, Kansas, and their bags wound up in Bogota, Colombia. And they spent the weekend without their clothes, and they never got their bags back, never saw them again. Now, if they had known, if Dave and Judy had known before they headed to the airport that their bags were going to wind up in South America, do you think they would have spent all that time folding them and packing them? No would have been silly. And see, Paul is saying the same thing to us. When we check in, we're going to check in without our bags. See? So it's foolish, see? it's foolish to spend all of our time and energy trying to accumulate and amass a great amount of wealth, because we're going to have to drop it all at the gate when we enter heaven. Now, the second reason that he tells us that we should not be ambitious for wealth is that it's destructive. It's dangerous. He says this in verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. In other words, if you want to get rich, you open yourself up to spiritual temptation. You fall into the snare. That's the snare of the devil he's talking about. You become a victim, his victim, and you fall into foolish and harmful desires. Now, I want to spend just a minute trying to define this phrase, want to get rich, uh, because there are probably a number of us in here who would like to think we're not in that category, that we're not ambitious. Now, there are several ways in which this desire to be rich expresses itself. One is in a very overt way, when I make a commitment, my goal in life is to be a millionaire by the age of 35. It, clearly, that's a man who wants to get rich. Now, for most of us, I think this desire is a little more subtle. And for most of us, the desire to get rich is expressed not in such blatant terms, but simply as a desire to have more than I have now. That's how wanting to be rich shows up in our lives. Now, my wife and I have had a good... Uh, training experience in this over the last year and a half. We moved to Boise a year and a half ago, and uh, basically what we owned was in the back of our car. And we thought to ourselves and to each other, you know, if, if only we had a house 
we would be so happy here in Boise. Well, through a miraculous chain of events, we were able to buy a house, and it's a lovely house, one that we really like. And then we got to thinking, you know, if we only had a, a lawn, we would really be able to enjoy this house. And we were able to get a lawn. And then we began to think, you know, if we only had a fence around this lawn, we'd be so much happier with this house. And so we began to be consumed with this project. How can we get a fence up around our lawn? Well, then we got most of the fence up around our lawn. And then we began to think, you know, the outside of the house is in good shape, but, you know, I'd really like to have more furniture on the inside. So that began to occupy our thoughts. And we forgot about the fact that we had a house to be thankful for, a lawn to be thankful for, and a fence. It was always a desire to have more. Well, that's wanting to get rich. See, a restlessness, a restless desire to acquire, to accumulate. Now, Paul says it's dangerous. It opens yourself up to temptation, to the snare of the devil, and to many foolish desires. I was trying to think of what a foolish desire is, and the best description I came up with one was a quote I read from uh, Will Rogers, and he said that, when we get into this trap of accumulating wealth, that what happens is that we wind up buying things we really don't want to impress people we really don't like. Now, now that is a foolish desire. And Paul says this kind of a desire is destructive, and I think he shares with us in verse 10 three ways in which this kind of desire is harmful to us. Three ways in which this ambition for wealth is destructive. The first thing he says is that the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. He says the love of money is like a seed, which if you plant it in the earth, it sprouts and it brings forth a harvest of evils. That the love of money brings a lot of friends with it. And if you think about this for a minute, you can see how this operates. If you have a love of money, you are liable to fall into envy of those who have more than you do into a greed, a covetousness to have things that other people have, a jealousy of the financial status and security that other people have, you begin to compare yourselves constantly to others around you in terms of possession, begin to compete with them for a show of wealth. You may be easily become very critical of the way other people handle their finances, the way other people spend their money, and you may wind up bitter about your own lack of financial prosperity. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. It's destructive. Now the second thing, he says, is that it is destructive because it causes us to wander away from the faith. He says those who long for it, some by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith. So that a love of money draws us away from our love for God. That we can't have our cake and eat it too. Now most of us in this room would like to be able to do both. We would love to be able to love God and to love money equally and somehow manage to walk that tightrope. Well Paul says, and the Lord concurs with him on this, it's not possible. The way the Lord put it is you cannot serve two masters. You will either love the one and hate the other or you will despise the one and cleave to the other that if you love money, it will draw you away from your love for God. And on the other hand, if you love God, that will begin to draw you away from your love and preoccupation with money. 
but it's destructive. The love of money is because it draws us away from God. Now, the third thing he says, the third reason it's destructive, not only does it arouse other evils, not only does it draw us away from God, but he says, those who have wandered away from the faith have pierced themselves, in verse 10, with many a pang. That is, those who want to get rich do things, many things, that they later come to regret. They pierce themselves with many a pang, just like being run through with a sword. They pierce themselves with many regrets. I know of men who have gotten so involved in the race for the top that they've lost a sense of perspective on their values at home and have drifted off into sexual affairs, which have been very damaging and destructive to home life. Uh, Howard Hendricks is fond of remarking that this desire to, uh, for wealth often expresses itself in a preoccupation with the job at the expense of time with family, especially in the early years when a man's trying to establish himself in his career. He will often sacrifice time with family for time with the job. And he says, you know, I have had uh, many men, scores of men, who have come up to me later in life and they said to me, you know, Prof, I really blew it when I was young. I just did not spend enough time with my kids. And he goes on to say, in all of my ministry, in all of my career, spanning decades, I have never in my life had one man come up to me and say, you know, Prof, I really blew it. I spent too much time with my kids when I was young. See? So you wind up doing things that you regret if you ambition is to get, what, is to get rich. Well, now what should we do? What should the man of God do if he's not to pursue wealth, make uh, rich, uh, richness his ambition? What should he do? Paul tells us in verse 11. He says, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. I'll just trace through this very briefly. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this section, but there are basically four things that Paul tells us to do. First of all, flee from these things. That is, we are to make a conscious decision not to revolve our lives around money, not to pursue wealth at the expense of other things. We're to flee from that. Secondly, Paul says we are to pursue righteousness, that righteousness is to become the thing that we are ambitious for. Our focus now is to be as righteous as we used to want to be wealthy, to pursue after righteousness. And he stresses this in verse 13 and 14, again, this element of personal righteousness, when he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach. That's to be our goal, to keep the commandment without stain or reproach. How long are we to have this as a goal? Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a lifetime goal. Many of you men in this room, I am sure, are very much into goal planning. You may have one-year goals, five-year goals, ten-year goals. Well, Paul suggests that this is the goal that ought to go right at the top of the list. If you're ambitious for anything, this ought to be it. This is a lifetime goal. And that is to keep the commandment without stain or reproach. The number one goal in life is to be personally righteous. Thirdly, he says not only are we to, uh, to make a decision not to pursue wealth, not to make that our ambition. Secondly, to pursue righteousness as the priority. 
Thirdly, he says that we are to fight the good fight of faith. And Paul uses this phrase, fight the good fight, to refer to his struggle for the advance of the gospel. In other words, he says the third thing you're to do is not only to be ambitious for personal righteousness, but to have a desire to be involved in the spread of the gospel, to be involved, in other words, in some form of ministry, to discover your spiritual gift and begin to exercise it for the good of the body and advance the gospel in that way. Thursday night at our home Bible study, we had one of the men in our group who shared a prayer request with us. He said, I just want to, to discover how I can be more and more useful for God, how I can edify others and be useful to him in the lives of others. Well, what's he doing? He's fighting the good fight of faith. And there's the fourth thing that Paul says. He says, we are to take hold of the eternal life to which we were called. Eternal life is available to us in Christ. This is Paul's way of saying you are to take hold of eternal life, that is, take hold of Christ. Renew your commitment to depend upon him for everything. As you weave your way through this competing desires for wealth and righteousness, you need to take hold of the Lord. He's the one that can steer you right through that and enable you to structure your priorities in a way that the Lord wants you to. Now, in verses 17 to 19, he gives us a final word to those who are rich. There may be a number of you in this room who not, uh, do not want to be rich any longer because you already are. Well, Paul has a word for you. He says to Timothy, instruct those who are rich in this present world, and notice again, this present world indicates that it's temporary, not going to last. Instruct those who are rich not to be conceited, or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Now, by the way, I should mention in this respect, uh, as we listen to the story that Wayne read to us earlier, that we in the United States are rich, all of us, regardless of our level of income, we are rich in comparison to the rest of the world. So in some respect, these words apply to all of us. We cannot dodge these words by claiming that we are uh, simply middle class or lower middle class. In respect to the rest of the world and in respect to many of our neighbors, we are wealthy. So this word is for all of us. And he suggests that there are two temptations that the wealthy have to face. First of all is the temptation to conceit. That if we are wealthy, the temptation is to feel that we must be superior to other people. We must be superior in our business sense or our intellect. We are simply superior as individuals. Paul says, don't feel that way. Do not be conceited. And the second temptation is to build a false sense of security on our possessions, to fix our hope on the uncertainty of riches rather than on God, to find our sense of well-being and security in the fact that all our bases are covered. Paul says, don't do that. Because, he says, we're to fix our hope on God, who richly supplies us with all things. In other words, the reason we are wealthy, if we are, is not because we are superior individuals, but because God has richly supplied us. We owe our wealth not to our hard work, not to our business sense, but we owe it to God. There are many men with good business sense who were hard workers who were not wealthy. What's the difference? Well, God chooses to richly supply us with all things. Now, he also says that he richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. In other words, if you are wealthy, 
you have possessions and you have things, enjoy them. That's what, that's what Paul says. God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. There's no need to feel guilty about enjoying the things that God has blessed us with as long as we recognize that they come from his hand. So go ahead and enjoy them. Is it wrong to be rich? No. Go ahead and enjoy it. But Paul has one more caution. He says to the rich in verse 18, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and ready to share. So that's the basic word to the rich, is with your wealth, be ready, be generous, be ready to share, to help those who have financial need. Use your wealth to minister to the needs of people who are hurting. Use your wealth to uh, help God's work around the world advance. Why should we do that? He tells us in verse 19, we're to store up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So it's good sense to become rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, is an investment that pays an eternal dividend. That's the point that Paul makes. You know, if the businessmen in the room could take a look somehow by some secret process, take a look at the financial page of the newspaper 10 years from today, you'd know exactly where to put your money, wouldn't you? you know exactly which stocks to invest in and which to avoid. You'd become a multi-millionaire in 10 years. You had that kind of foresight. Well, Paul has given us a little glimpse at the financial page of heaven right here. Because if you're rich in good works, if you're generous and ready to share, you are storing up for yourselves the treasure of a good foundation. That here's an investment that repays rich dividends. I found a good quote this week from a guy named Fred Smith, who's a very wealthy businessman. I'd like to read this quote that he, he gave on money. It says, money is a tool. Money is an option. God has chosen this as a method of developing maturity. I think we as Christians ought to establish in each other's hearts a fear of the love of money. Not a fear of money, but a fear of the power of money. Just as we caution people against immorality, we ought to caution them against the greed of the rich or the envy of the poor. Money is a trust, and we will be evaluated as trustees. We don't get out from under our trusteeship by giving 10%. We are obligated to be trustees of everything that we have. So it's not wrong to be rich, and it's not wrong to make good money. It is wrong to revolve our life around the pursuit of wealth instead of righteousness. That's to be the thing we strive for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these searching words that really do probe us and cause us to rethink our approach to life. We pray that you would free us from the clutches of materialism, free us from the anxiety which indicates our lives are revolved around things, and free us to pursue righteousness. We ask, Lord, that you'd make us men and women who desire to be righteous above all, desire to be righteous far more than we desire to be rich. In Christ's name, amen.